1: Easier said, done.
2: Cockroach fans. <laughs> Hi, gang. How are you? It's me. Hi, George. Who else? Time to take the reins and get everything under control here. By oh, God, you give them an inch of, an inch of rope and uh, I'll see what happens. It's, uh, oh, it's on the... Ah, uh, well, uh, well, think about it later there. Oh, one, two, three, four. Uh, all set with that number one in there? All right, Nick. I am on the scene and I am ready to go. That's it. Try it again. You got the last note. Try it from the top, Nick. I'm on the scene and I'm ready to go. Nothing working? What's the matter? Uh, see, that's what happens. You get hit on the head with a curtain. You come out, you know, play big. Are you ready in there? <laughs> Good. All right. All right. Uh, this is the way life should be. Uh, you know, have trouble with life as uh, we know it. And uh, there's a great country-western song that says, so you come around and you tell me life is hard. In comparison to what? That's not bad. And I, I agree, you know, but the trouble with life today among many people's lives is that it just doesn't have any drama. You know, everybody watches showbiz, they watch television, they watch the theater, they watch movies all day long. And always, wherever you go, the people who are in those movies live lives of fantastic drama. I mean, really, you know, that's that's what it's about. Uh, Steve McQueen's life is rich with with uh, moment-to-moment drama, always. And what do you do? You know, you hang around, wait for your cleaning. And then you shift from one foot to the other in front of the Dairy Queen. And you go, and you spend a lot of time waiting for your car to be taken out of the parking lot so you can drive it. And then you spend a lot of time just sitting at 49th Street going nowhere because the traffic... You know, you don't, you don't see uh, Steve McQueen sitting 40 hours, maybe 20 hours in a traffic jam. But you, yeah... So what we need is drama in our life, real drama. And you can, you know, that there's an outfit today that will wire your home. I'm I'm serious, with various types of, uh, of uh, electric eyes and uh, speakers that are concealed, that gives your life drama. When you sit down in a chair, for example, and uh, your 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 furniture is programmed so that no matter where you go, area lighting lights you to pick up your high cheekbones and to give uh, to give a sense of drama about your very presence and of course all the other people and you know your friends come to the house they don't know this and so you sit down in this chair saying so you reach down and you press a button and the light subtly changes on you because you know where the areas are and the next thing you know your eyes are deep pools of passion your cheekbones have rich dark shadows on. you know it's like John Gielgud playing Hamlet and people listen to you. All the rest of them, of course, have got dull lighting. So there you are in the middle. You're sticking out like some monument to the human race. And your pronouncements will be heard. And as you walk into various rooms, for example, uh, just without any warning, uh, due to the uh, judicious use of electric eyes and tapes and stuff, you walk into the room. And suddenly, as you walk in, all eyes are turned because speakers everywhere have gone. <laughs> Charlie's on the scene. <coughs> Thank you. <laughs> you got to be careful. <laughs> you blow the gaff if you keep doing that. <laughs> oh man, that's uh, you know that's a uh, you have to you have to you know the trouble with most people they don't realize that uh, that they're in the presence of professionals. You know it's a professional thing, uh, telling stories and uh, being funny and all. Sure, Johnny Carson walks out on a stage and you know, he's been he's been dressed. He's been Programmed and he's uh, there's, a, there's an entire staff that does nothing but deal with Johnny's hair and his, his skin. Did you know that? Sure, yeah, makeup and a whole bit. Boy, half an hour. What do you do? You know, you shave, you walk out, you put a little piece of John paper where the shave was cut, you know, and, and you figure that you're, you're looking great. Oh, no. It's all programming in life today. And I see that within a couple of years, there's going to be organizations devoted to programming your life. It's going to give you a character. You, you you walk in, they they take a profile of you, and they look you over and they say, "Look at, uh, Mr. Mr. Applerot. And we've come to the conclusion that uh, we're going to go with your problems. You're a little short, fat guy with pimples, right? Well, we're going to go with that. So uh, what? How how best does a little short, fat guy with pimples make it? Well, he makes it if he's funny. You're not funny. So we're going to we're going to turn you into a comic." And every week, we're going to supply you with lines, great things to say. And you'll be a laugh a minute, you know, like uh, Buddy, uh, what's his name? The little short, fat guy. It's, a, it's a, the, the comic. We're going, to pro, we're going to program you like that. You're going to be a barrel of laughs. Now, another thing, you tend to dress like an insurance man. Now, how far do you think that uh, Jackie Leonard would get dressing like an insurance man? All right. We're going to get you a little pork pie hat. You're going to wear that all the time. It's going to add to your comic, uh, your comic image. Uh, you're going to have to have a little uh, mustache underneath the chin there. That's going to give you a little uh, a vague Charlie Chaplin look. Okay? And uh, we're going to send you down to our comedy workshop so that uh, you'll, be known as, uh, you'll be known as the, the card among your, cri- your, your gang. And you'll be wanted at every party. You'll be a buffoon. And, of course, uh, you'll go out feeling a little squelched. You realize that you're designed... As a person, you're designed to have a pie in the face. And the trouble is, all along, you've been thinking to yourself as vaguely inside of you is a Gary Cooper waiting to spring out, this tall, thin, hard-eyed man who had saved the girl in the last reel. Not at all. That uh, our life programming organization will determine what is your real character. And we will provide you with costuming and material and dialogue to bring it out the best in you. Now, on the other hand, uh, for example, there's a lot of people who are living the life of a hippie today. And they're not hip. They're uh, they're really basically uh, papoon types. It's not easy to, to, you know, to grow long hair and you keep, you know, it keeps itching you. I know a lot of guys that have a hell of a time with their long hair because of the itching problem. And they, that's right. They're basically, they're, their basic character is... Uh, Pat Bone. So play it. Play it. Go all the way. Be an ultra Pat Bone. Is there still a Pat Bone? Is there? What's he doing these days? I see. Well, I can't say down on the air. Heaven's sakes. I don't want to hear that. Is there an Eddie Fisher? Oh, he, he too, huh? I'll be damned. You know, I, I'm beginning to believe that there's a great elephant's graveyard... There's an ancient elephant graveyard of all passe performers, (laughs) you know, and and sitting up at the head table, you know, is Fats Domino, and uh, they're all sitting there talking about, you know, Rosemary Clooney raises her hand, she talks a little bit. In fact, that's going to be very commercial. Have you ever seen those uh, thousands of records they're selling these days? You know, the the great songs of uh, 1947, (laughs) which... (laughs) <laughs> I wonder who buys that stuff, yeah, I wonder about that, but as you walk into the room, you know it's very important to come in with a sense of presence. All great actors will tell you this when you come out on the stage, you've got to bust out on that stage as, a, as an entity, a presence, a nimbus of you-ness has come out there, and you have to think of every place you go as a stage. You don't just you don't just walk into the kitchen and slump down. You know much of your friends Aki and Howie are sitting around. Marty and, and Clarence, and they're all sitting there playing Pinochle. And you you, you walk in. What do you do? Do you just sit down? Hell no. A, a person who wants to grab them where it counts, you make an entrance. You wait till everybody's there. Don't ever be the first ever. The star is never first in line, right? You know this, right, Nick? The star never arrives early. You wait till everybody's there, and they're beginning to wonder, where is... Where's Max tonight? Where's Max? That's the whole point. You want him You want him to wonder. It's like waiting for a Godot. If you wait too long, of course, then it's you've blown the gaff. By then, they they get bugged and they say to the hell with him and uh, that's the end of it. But you want people to say, hey, what, what happened to Max? The next guy says, gee, I don't know. The third one says, did you call him, Aki? Yeah, I called him. He said he'd be here. A sense of mystery is beginning to develop. The third one says, yeah, I don't know about Max. He's never late. I wonder where Max is. And all of a sudden, uh, this giant figure wearing his Adler elevators stands in the doorway with the light playing over his high cheekbones. And he opens his mouth. And just as he opens his mouth, the speakers... Ah. (laughs) There you go, man. (laughs) Now you got it all. That's important. Hey, listen, uh, speaking of important things here, uh, uh, you got to learn to play your disadvantages. uh, uh, Tonight, uh, I... uh, you ever get a chance to read medical magazines, any of you? Well, I have uh, two or three of my best friends are doctors. It's <laughs> you know you you always got to have a couple of friends that are doctors. You figure if you have a friend that's a doctor, nothing can really happen to you. <laughs> you know it's like it's like one of your best friends a cop. You know you figure that you're safe, uh, that you're on the right side. Say. So, Oh yeah. That's, this is, of course, yeah, this is a very interesting philosophy and in psychology. A lot of my friends are very pleased to number among their acquaintances a high-placed member of the mafia. It's a you know, kind of feeling like uh, you're immune. Then it's like it's like a zebra making friends with a lion. Yeah, you know, you kind of feel good when you're walking around with the herd of zebra. Is that the uh, plural of zebra, zebra, zebras, zebraissimo? Yeah, well, you're walking around with the rest of the zebras, and they're all all scared out of their skull, you know, because it has been reported recently that there's a lion in the neighborhood. You know, they're all walking around sweating, chewing away at the grass, and uh, you somehow have this feeling of immunity because one of your best friends is a lion. (laughs) Say, oh, Leo, a friend of mine. All right, George. And then you hear off in the distance, roar, a lion roaring, roar! whatever these lions do. Give me a little echo chamber. I like to make my lion roar. Do you ever hear a lion actually roaring in the in the wilderness? I have. They grunt. Yeah, I, I, I was uh, in East Africa, and the first lion I came across was just grunting. He goes. Mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. Now, the echo chamber is very important because the lion has a built-in echo chamber. Yeah, as you know, that great big chest there and all that stuff going on. Yeah, lions are filled with stuff. They're not filled with sawdust, you know, like the ones that you buy in a the store. These are, they got all kinds of things going. And when they let this go, it it resounds over the veldt. The veld uh, uh, to all of us uh, sold African hands, the veldt the is the veldt. And uh, for those of you who don't know what the veldt is, uh, I could make a terrible pun on that, but I won't. <laughs> I'll refrain. Whenever we have Nick on, he gets this... Nick is a man of infinite sensibility, and I just have to cut out the puns when Nick is on board. So I would have said I have a great pun that's based on the word and I won't use it tonight. I won't. Now, on the other hand, when George is working, George loves puns. Every time I, I, I come up with a rotten pun, George falls off the chair cheers and yells. Nick gets up and walks out. I'd have to do the rest of the show by myself. I mean, it's terrible to have a comment. In, in fact, I'll, uh, the first time I ever saw the, the, the uh, editorial of The Technician, uh, you ought to see what goes on backstage in, in uh, Broadway theaters. And uh, I've done some uh, work on, on and off Broadway stages and and I remember one night in a big Broadway-type show that I was involved in, the first time I ever actually saw the stagehands editorializing. Oh man, do they editorialize? And they, uh, they, oh yeah. Uh, I remember the comment one of them made about Hamlet. said ah, come on, he's like my brother-in-law. Yeah, he walks around the house all the time. Lives up in Fordham Road. All he does is gripe all the time. The Quetcher. said I should come here and pay to see a Quetcher. I says, you mean this is what you think of Hamlet? Listen to him. He's listened to him. He's all the time talking. He says, I know what his trouble is. He wants to take over the old man's business. My God, it's the best definition I've ever seen of Hamlet. He hit it right in the head. See, he knew he had a cousin that did the same thing up on Fordham Road. You know, speaking of uh, nepotism, this is WOR New York. How about giving us that great WOR station break? Get your station uh, ready out there, friends, to record this. Get your tape recorders going. Here's a classical W.O.R. station break, and we get more uh, requests for this than anything else. This is what a W.O.R. station break sounded like in the years of World War II. One of our uh, engineers here dug it out of the vast archives of trivia that we have down in the basement with mold, you know, old Walter Winchell shows and stuff like that. This is the way W.O.R. made its station break late in World War II. (laughs) Yes, chit w chit 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 somebody stop me. Oh, <whosos> <O-R- laughs> if you can stop me. Yeah. O R. Fourteen forty Broadway. Choo 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 choo. Seven on your dial. That powerful, powerful station with a fifty kilowatt smile. <laughs> mutual, 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 mutual heard by near and far. This is W W W. Somebody stop me. Oh uh, uh. yeah. Now uh, that uh, there's uh, certain errors on that that uh, do not pertain today. We are not mutual here. But uh that's pretty much that sounds like our sales department. That sounds pretty much the same as it does today, all sitting around singing and yelling. You know, having a lunch on a lunch special account there. And, uh, you know, a lot of action. Not much uh, no much not much meat, but a lot of potatoes. A lot of the that's the station break. <laughs> Listen, will you fools and knaves out there quit calling up the station to find out the address and where to order your bird. It's a little silly you know for the radio station to be telling you where to buy a bird that flaps its wings and flies. So uh, write it down right now. It's Flying Birds This is the address If you don't know what we're talking about we've got this thing here. It's the craziest commercial i ever had in my whole life outside of the uh, gypsy fish bait oil which I once had and uh, also the beautiful Last Supper linoleum tablecloth, which was kind of nice. But... Did <laughs> I ever tell you about that one? But uh, if uh, if you haven't heard about these, these wild little things that this Frenchman, whose name I will not even attempt to pronounce, Guy de Roambeck. Anyway, he spent three years trying to invent a bird that would fly. When you wind it up, you wind it up. A little rubber band in it, and it flaps its wings, and off it goes. And it actually flies. It's an ornithopter. And it is guaranteed to fly, which is more than your uncle is. It's guaranteed to fly and will go 600 feet at whatever altitude you set the little tail to. And I suggest you don't fly this thing much during duck season. Nothing madder than a Jersey hunter that's just shot down a plastic bird, I'll tell you. But uh, nevertheless, uh, if you'd like to order one of these great little things, they're maddening. Uh, I would suggest you put a check or a money order in the mail and don't make it out to me, for God's sakes. Make it out to Flying Birds that spell flying. You know how to spell flying. Birds, B U R D S, Flying Birds. Department S. S is in whatever you want to make it in. Department S, P O Box 1909. 19, as they say, 1909. 1909, Post Office Box 1909. Grand Central Station, New York, New York. Where else? One oh oh one seven. Okay, that's enough for her birds. You saw me crying in the
1: chapel,
2: the tears I shed tears of joy. Hi, this is Sunny Till of the Orioles Quartet. Did you know the Air Force can now guarantee you a job specialty before you enlist? Just stop by your local recruiter and make your choice from his list. Then, if your aptitude tests back up your choice, the Air Force guarantees to train you to master a job that will work for you in or out of service. So guarantee your future before you sign up. Find yourself in the United States Air Force. But uh, nevertheless, uh, I think the, uh, the, uh, the reason I brought up the fact that I have medical friends is that the, one of my medical friends keeps me abreast of the stuff that's appearing in the literature. And uh, whenever he comes across something that's particularly jazzy, he, uh, he sends it on. And there's a medical journal. It's a sort of semi-official, uh, unofficial medical journal called M.D. Did you ever hear of it? Most people, you know, they know about the AMA Journal. But uh, the, M- the M.D. is a kind of a, well, it's, a, it's more of a pop magazine. But it's, it it's really is not, it's only for doctors, but it's a lighter one. You know, it's not as official. It's sort of a news magazine for doctors. And he sent me this, uh, this particular issue, or part of this issue. And it's a couple of months ago. And it's an editorial in uh, M.D., and it's kind of interesting. <laughs> i tell you, it really is. He just said it log. He said, uh, I think you may find this interesting. And I read it. And I thought, wow, you know, it really is. And it starts out, and it's, uh, it's an editorial about something which I have thought a great deal about, and perhaps not many of you have. And it is the whole subject of flying. See, I'm a pilot. And uh, I do a lot of flying, private flying. I enjoy it very much. And I find that the world is really divided into two people, two groups now. It really is a distinct two-group thing. Flying has a real psychological effect on people. It's very subliminal and it's very real. The people either love flying or they're scared to death of it. There's no in-between. There's just no in-between. It's uh, like sex very much the same way, that there are people who love sex, I'm talking about actually partaking of it, and there are people who are deadly afraid of it for reasons that uh, go far beyond the scope of this semester's course, <laughs> which we... <laughs> but it's a fact. And it's a fact of existence. Now, uh, they will invent all kinds of reasons to be afraid of sex. Uh, they range all the way from a very highly moral code, very strict uh, code of morality, to uh, simply uh, shaking and uh, sweating heavily when the subject is brought up. Uh, this uh, this is a fact. There are other people to whom sex is just a normal part of life, and in fact a highly enjoyable part of life. And those two groups of people can never quite understand each other. That uh, I think the people who hate sex, or are afraid of it, are the people who buy books on how to do it. Because they figure if they read enough books, someday, in in chapter 5, all of a sudden something's going to happen, and they're going to (laughs) change. They're going to change into something else. These are the same people, I suspect, who go to uh, highly explicit sexual movies that I find that most people who go to these movies, uh, you know, the the, uh, so-called sex educational films that uh, are up and down 42nd Street today, these are generally people, if you've ever seen the crowd and and talked to any of them, who obviously have their problems, real problems. And uh, they're also the ones you see skulking in and out of the stacks at the pointy bookshops. It's obvious, they they ain't the guys that... uh, you know, that are the leading lights at the party. You can just tell by, <laughs> just by standing in front of these places once and watching them go in and watching them skulk out. So I suspect that the, that the people who read about sex and who, who buy the books on how to do it are people who, in general, are the people who, from the very onset of uh, sexual urges early in your life, are either deadly frightened of it or deadly ashamed or a combination of both, and ultimately it produces a curious product. Uh, People I know who are involved in the field, by that I mean in practice, they're out in the field, Nick, you know, (laughs) they never go to these movies. Uh, They simply don't. Uh, Because the movie is, after all, a vicarious thing. It doesn't have much to do with the real thing. And so I think that's true of flying up to a certain extent. It's a certain, certain, there's a certain parallel. And the magazine, MD, has a very interesting essay. And it, you just listen to this. It's, it's much more interesting than you think it's going to be. So listen to this. This is written in a medical magazine. It starts out with the uh, headline, The Wings of Wax. From high upon the rocky promontory, the father took one last look around him before beginning his flight. His wings vibrated gracefully with every slight movement of his arms. Beside him stood his young son, fluttering his tiny wings as freely as a fledgling sparrow. Ahead of them, rippling under a gentle breeze, stretched the azure sea like an undulating carpet. The sky was such a deep blue That the distant horizon seemed more like a gentle hollow where both blues merged than a gilded boundary line. The father gave his son a kiss and then, spreading his great wings, leaped forward. Behind him, he could hear the agitated flapping of his son's small wings. For a short time, father and son flew softly and smoothly through the crystal clear air. That a beautiful scene? The father had constructed the wings, patterning them in layers similar to those of a bird, fastening together masses of feathers. The smaller ones joined with wax, and the larger ones tied with thread. Farmers plowing the soil and fishermen in their boats stopped their work. And even the seagulls froze for an instant, startled to watch the passage of the golden bearded man and the rosy-skinned boy flying through the sky with their resplendent feathered wings. The boy, inebriated with the sensation of flight, began to fly higher and higher. And then came the catastrophe. For soon the heat of the sun began to melt the wax that held the boy's feathers together. Like a bird with lead on its wing, the boy plunged into the sea and the blue waves quietly closed over his head. The father, flying on ahead at a considerable distance, was unaware of what had happened. All that remained from that tragic flight were a few scattered white feathers floating on the azure waves of the sea surrounding the island that today is called Icaria. You've heard that legend, of course. Icarus. Icarus. Matters not how you pronounce it. It's the same legend. And then they go on to say, modern aviation has revived the ageless conflict of the delight and terror of flying, symbolized in the ancient myth of Icarus. Several years ago, an unprecedented number of personnel in the United States Army Air Forces were reported as being unable to continue flying. Various reasons were given, but the majority of the men stated either that they no longer felt the desire to fly or that some physical or emotional ailment prevented them. With the development and progress of aviation, the demand for pilots has increased enormously and has emphasized the need to find out just what exactly are the psychological problems that can develop in those engaged in flying. The fact that an aviator can develop a psychological fear or hatred of flying poses the problem of exposing all the possible roots of the mental conflicts to which a pilot is especially susceptible, since his own life as well as the lives of his crew and passengers depend upon his physical and emotional balance. This is fascinating, because they talk about passengers now. The passengers, an intriguing character. You know that, that, uh, that over the years, in, the, in, the la- in fact, in the last few years... Uh, the the airlines have found something very interesting that, uh, and it's kind of confusing to a pilot, a person who loves flying, that the average person who flies on an airplane, he does not want to know he's on an airplane. And if you notice, the advertising has has gone further and further away from you know pointing out that you're on a plane. They want to make you feel like you're in some beautiful cocktail lounge. That's what you're in, real. And uh, it's just like you're at home, you know. People walking around, and having cocktails. <laughs> and, and the, the 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 idea that you're hurtling through the air at at, at uh, 600 miles an hour at 40,000 feet in temperatures of minus 70 degrees below zero is uh, never never mentioned. It's uh, it just never. You, you never see the outside. You you know, it's never pointed out. Well, they found that in the earlier days of flying, and that's just a few years ago, you know, flying is a comparatively recent thing. There's probably people listening right now tonight to the show who quite probably were alive before there were airplanes. It's hard to believe that. But uh, in 1903, the first uh, flight by the Wright brothers was made, and incidentally it was... It was December of 1903. So figure it out. You can, you can figure exactly how long it's been. And you know, it uh, might be of interest to know that for the first four or five years, they might as well have not flown because nobody paid any attention to them, you know. Did you know that? It's interesting that they were making flights in Dayton. So if you think that the real news of your time is being reported in the newspapers, I can only point out something to you. Do you know that at no point... Did any major newspaper in America ever record the publication of a novel by Mark Twain? One of the great writers, truly great writers of the 19th century. He was never reported in the paper when his book, like Huck Finn or Tom Sawyer, came out. But there were a lot of, you know, a lot of tripe books that were reported and, and uh, thought to be very important, so... That's a fact. I mean, even among major newspapers, he was never reported. It was not considered important. Uh, another thing about the Wright brothers, it's a very interesting story about that, that when the Wright brothers flew, they sent a, a, a telegram back to their father saying, we have succeeded, we have flown. This was in Kitty Hawk. We have succeeded. Notify the press. Well, the only problem was the press wasn't interested. Notify the press. And only five newspapers carried the fact that the Wright brothers had flown, and they carried it in a very, very distorted fashion. And so they were very discouraged, and they came back to Dayton, and they, they proceeded to continue to fly in a field that was right next to a, a streetcar line. And the commuters would go every day down th- right past the field and see this airplane flying around. And they were astounded. The airplanes flying 60, 70 feet in the air. Now, nobody saw airplanes. I mean, that was it. It was the only airplane flying in the world. It was the first one. Are you curious what they called their airplane? It had a name. What was the right airplane called? Well, it was the right flyer. That was its name. It was called a flyer with a capital F. And uh, they had patented the right flyer. And they were flying around. And they'd, they'd make these big... They had learned to fly, you see, and they were doing uh, big loop—not loops—but they were making big banks at the end of the field and coming back and and sweeping around. And nobody read anything in the papers about this, <laughs> and they couldn't believe it. They were seeing this thing, and they couldn't uh, couldn't understand it. So there were a lot of—and uh, I'm quoting, by the way—a a piece that we appeared in a recent flying magazine where they they did a lot of investigating. And so they called, a lot of people called the newspapers in Dayton, Ohio, and said, what is this? We don't read anything about it. They simply never published anything. Later on, the editor of the major newspaper of Dayton was asked, how come? You know, this is years later, after the airplane became a world-famous thing, and, of course, the Wright brothers are really historical people. And he knew the Wright brothers. And he was asked, how come you never printed anything about it? This is Well, we didn't believe it." Well, then the next question was, what do you mean you didn't believe it? They were just doing it right down the street, there. You know, he says, well, you know, they were kind of crackpots. So, kind of crack, but they were, uh, crackpot or not, they weren't obviously not crackpots. Anybody that does something that uh, is out of the ordinary is called a crackpot to many people. So this they is you're kind of crackpots. And then uh, later on, when he was pressed, and, and somebody says, well, come on, that isn't uh, what, what? Why? Why didn't you? he? Says, well, he said, let's admit it, we were dumb. <laughs> Which was a moment of rare, rare uh, self admission. So, if you think that the real important, the really important things of your time are being reported in the newspaper, I would respectfully submit that only history can say that's true. Uh, that, that uh, really seriously, that only history will ultimately tell whether or not something that was really important during a time was actually reported in the newspapers of that time. Because quite often the really important thing that has happened is uh, so often off the wall and seems to be done by such peculiar people <laughs> that, uh, that uh, who takes it seriously? And a hundred years from now, of course, that was the case. But flying was very much like that. And I, I, I find that uh, the people today, there's a great lack of knowledge of flying, that the people who fly in airplanes, I mean, just passengers, they may fly thousands of hours a year, in a plane, as a passenger, have almost no understanding of how the airplane flies, why it's up in the air, what makes it work. And it's a basic uh, physical law that's at work there. And they have no idea. They think it's vaguely magic. And they also think, too, that the, that the magic that's involved is highly trust uh, untrustworthy that any minute now the magic will stop and the airplane will fall. And so they prefer not to know anything about it. <laughs> and yet uh, yet uh, flying as, a, as an entity is, is an extremely safe experience. That it, it, uh, it, it is historically and also uh, statistically. But that's hard to convince people of. And for a me- number of reasons. And that's exactly why I made the parallel with sex. That the reasons are far more emotional than they are intellectual. And so they found that by, by, in a sense, very definitely closing out the outside world in a plane, the people lost their fear of flying. In short, of uh, putting a, a movie inside the plane, of uh, keeping people busy eating, uh, giving people uh, all kinds of books to read and fantastic girls to look at and making the windows smaller and smaller until today the window of an airplane is a tiny thing compared to the overall size of the plane take a look at a 747 it looks like somebody put those windows in with an ice pick you know little tiny things and uh, so ultimately they found that the the people draw within themselves and they they prefer not to know about this thing that they're taking part in it's a it's a tube they suspect that it's some kind of a tube that hums, that goes between New York and Miami. You get into this tube and it's one long cocktail lounge. And it goes, and the next thing you know, it's over. It's like uh, some kind of a magical pneumatic tube. <laughs> and nevertheless, he says modern psychology has shown, this is from the medical magazine, that most mental conflicts are intertwined with a complicated network of symbolism. In aviation, "...the symbolism is so rich that a vast and colorful tapestry is formed. But just as it can be more interesting to view a Chinese tunic resplendent with dragons from the inside, so that only the filaments of gold thread glittering against the black silk can be seen, so shall we turn the inside, so shall we turn the tapestry of aviation over to show only the essential threads of which it is composed." In this way, we shall be able to simplify and reduce to an outline what would otherwise be a complex and highly specialized subject. And this is very brief. For millennia, man has lived in a universe where he was able to move in two dimensions only. The day he climbed into an airplane and added a third dimension to his world, man introduced a radical change into his mental structure. For he began to penetrate that celestial region that has always been for millennia the symbolic dwelling place of God and the gods. This goes even back into Indian lore. It goes back uh, to the very earliest of man who always seen up. Uh, that what do you think ast- astrology is based on? It's uh, All kinds of godlike things are controlling you up there in the heavens, see? He says those supreme powers who through the ages have symbolized goodness and faith, divinity and invisibility. For thousands of years, the sky was an immense unknown region for man. And in order to escape the confinement of that huge blue bell jar that enveloped him as though he was a tiny insect, he peopled it with the images and symbols that constitute the essence of his religions. The sky was thus accepted as the abode of favorable elements. And also evil elements and that of course is uh, c- carries through in the whole the whole mythology of uh, of astrology evil and good you're controlled by this star out there and that one out there see in addition it also contains such terrible cosmic threats as thunder and lightning bursts and tempests, fears fierce, fierce winds and merciless sun in this context the clouds which are the sky's landscape represented a very personal symbolic force for every aviator who dared to penetrate the mysterious, shoreless world of that infinite azure abyss. It is easy to understand why flying gives man the feeling of being liberated from all earthly laws. Flying high above a carpet of cotton-like clouds, which often resemble a gigantic herd of white elephants, and beneath an iridescent luster flowing from some mysterious beyond, man finds him face to face himself with the seventh solitude of the heights, while at the same time he also feels inebriated with the sensation of power that flying releases in him. In that unreal atmosphere, that incongruous reality, man's mind is ablaze with those capricious and fabulous fantasies that provide the key to his simultaneous love and fear of flying. Aviators at once among themselves and distinct from the rest of the human race feel that they are different. And they rarely do. And are, of course. Anyone who, like myself, has personally known those... Uh, so forth. Now, as a pilot, I can tell you that whenever I mention the people that I fly, there's two distinct reactions. Very distinct. One is, yeah, wow. The other is, oh, man, I hope you got your insurance paid up." Oh, wow. And he gets white in the face. It's a curious thing. And I, I, uh, I just wonder uh, how much of the mythology of the heavens and the, the, the curious symbolism that is within all of us, of the sky, is part... Have you ever watched uh, science fiction films? Almost all of them, almost without exception, the most, the most uh, successful ones at least, always have a superior being or a totally evil being coming from the heavens. Have you noticed that none of them ever come from the bowels of the earth? That our fear of the unknown is not really as simple. And you know that they know less about the center of the earth, I'm talking about scientists, of what lies under the earth's crust, than they do know about the heavens and the solar systems. You aware of that? So that the true unknown is right under your feet. And yet it doesn't frighten you. That 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 heaven up there is something else again, that it has a curious, mystic, symbolic feeling that somewhere up there, there are forces and things and beings over which we have no control, and in fact, could very well have control over us. And so a man who flies is apparently going right in the face of that, that... that uh, many centuries ago, when man used to have mythology about mountains, mountains, you know, reach up to the sky. And a mountain, including uh, such things as uh, Ararat, always seemed to have a mythological involvement with the sky itself, Mount Olympus. You can go on about mountains. And mountain climbers were driven by the same thing that drives people to go into the heavens. They were kind of flaunting, flaunting the gods that lived at the top of the mountains. Any of you know anything about Greek mythology, know that that the mountain was very important in Greek mythology. The gods lived on these mountains. He didn't live down in the valley someplace, he lived in the mountains. And so the earthbound man always feels in awe and yet at the same time fear. ...of the guy who climbs the mountain. It seems inexplicable to the earthbound man. cannot understand it. He also cannot understand the man who flies. It seems to him totally madness. And yet the man who flies can't understand the other man. He thinks that everybody should have a sense of mystery and release... ...and excitement over flying. And those two separate groups always march side by side, the earthbound and the flyers, and I know I'm going to get a thousand letters from people telling me why I shouldn't fly, because they can't understand it. On the other hand, the guys who do fly will write me letters and say, yeah, man, I've never never been able to convince anybody what it's all about. You notice people are never worried about automobile accidents, which are far more frequent than flying. Accidents. Yeah, speaking of... Oh, this is WOR New York. Stay tuned for Big Lester Smith and the News.